Hello, this is A.R. Bernard, and welcome to my podcast. My objective, it's simple, to create a platform where you can be educated, informed, and inspired as you navigate the intersection of faith and culture. If you have no faith, maybe you'll find it here. So, thanks for tuning in. I've learned in leadership that our responsibility is to be a covering, not a lid. Because when you're a lid, the objective is to contain under that lid whatever it is that you're trying to keep. But when you're a covering, you allow for expansion and growth and creativity. And too often when we talk about that intersection of destiny and legacy, there's a problem with letting go and embracing when essentially the two should work together. It's interesting that I'm standing here talking to you tonight and talking to nations around the world as a Christian because prior to my Christianity, I'm going to remember BC. Before Christ, guys. Christianity was the white man's religion, and Jesus was the white man's God. I was a black Muslim, part of an organization called the Nation of Islam. And growing up without a father, that organization provided for me identity, discipline, order, a surrogate father that was important for me growing up on the streets of Brooklyn, New York, Bedford-Stuyvesant and Bushwick. Yeah, come on. You're from the hood, you know the hood. I was searching for meaning trying to resolve the identity crisis that is common to every human being. I was part of the desegregation program that bussed us out to white communities and white schools. I grew up in both contexts, but made friends and relationships in both and discovered I had the ability to build bridges between the two. But a challenge where I landed theologically in the context of this organization that was essentially a protest movement, a reaction to the failure of Christianity in America to address the socioeconomic plight of people of color. And yet, within that five-year period from 1970 to 1975, I found order and discipline and identity, sense of belonging and acceptance but I didn't find God. And somehow I, I, I grew up hungry for God. Who is he? What is he? What is ultimate reality? I intuitively knew that God, truth, and reality were synonymous. And if I found one, the other two would be there. And I didn't find it. 
I kept looking. During that period of time, my wife and I got married. I went into the banking industry, financed for 10 years. And a secretary came to work for me that I didn't want. I wanted the other secretary that looked the part. <laughs> Come on, guys, this is a men's meeting. <laughs> so I got the one named Daisy Lopez, little lat lat Latino with a bun in the back, dressed in plain, dark clothes, no makeup except her wedding ring. And I found out it because she was Pentecostal. So she came to work for me in 1974, and that whole year, she talked to me about this Jesus and gave me something called chick tracks. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have no idea what a chick track is. And it's not that she could answer my questions about Jesus and about Christianity. I was always cerebral, reading. That's what I love to do. But it was her simple childlike faith that bothered me. I would say it tormented me for a whole year, 1974, while we were working together at the bank. Her pastor told her to stop talking to me because I was going to confuse her. But it was not her ability or inability to respond to my questions. It was this, this something about her that she could believe in this Jesus in such a deep and profound way. And that tormented me. So finally, by the end of 1974, December, she invited my wife and I to a meeting, Baptist Temple, downtown Brooklyn. And she said, there's going to be a guy there named Nikki Cruz, who was a former leader of the Mau Mau gang down in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And I said, that's interesting. I'd like to hear what he has to say about this, Jesus. So my wife and I went, January 11th, 1975, 8.30 p.m. And Nikki shared his message. And he spoke in Spanglish. <laughs> so I got a little bit here and a little bit there. But it wasn't him speaking. It was something else going on in the room. I didn't have the language to express it like I, sorry, still like it happened yesterday. But something was happening in that room to me. My wife was watching me. And he finally said, that, do you want to receive Jesus in your heart? And he said, stand up. So I stood up. And all of a sudden, something came over me. And I heard two things. Number one, God you're looking for. It wasn't a voice up in the ceiling. It was somewhere deep in here. And I knew intuitively 
It was Jesus. I couldn't explain how I knew. And then I heard the second thing. I and my word are one. And you see, that's important because the Jesus that I was exposed to was Indian with Indian eyes. And when I ran across him in Asia, he had slanted eyes. And when he was in the Middle East, he looked Middle Eastern. And in America, he, he, he looked white with blue eyes in most of the movies and the pictures. And down in the hood in Brooklyn, he had a white afro. <laughs> so I'm wondering, who's the real Jesus? But when I heard I and my word are one, all of a sudden, the iconography, the pictures, the statues, everything went away. And that word, that book, seized my heart, arrested me. Nikki made an altar call. I know what it is today. I didn't know what it was. He said, come on up. And I went up to the platform. And he said, do you want to receive Jesus? He could have said Mickey Mouse. I would have said yes. <laughs> I was vulnerable. And he touched my head. And I felt like someone put a blowtorch to my chest and put it on full blast. And I began weeping. And I didn't cry. That was not the manly thing to do. But I wept unashamedly because something deep happened inside of me. He prayed for me. And as I was exiting with my wife, my secretary and her husband came down and she looked at me in the back of the church. She said, did you get it? Did you get it? I had no idea what I was supposed to get. <laughs> so all I could say to her is that something happened to me and I'm trying to figure it out. And for the next 10 days, I could hardly function trying to figure this out. I didn't meet God in the church. That was a building. I met Jesus in his word. So it wasn't the institution of Christianity that saved me. It's the person of Jesus that saved me. And to this day, he intrigues me and inexhaustibly teaches me about life. And one of the things that happened to me, because then, you know, I, it's funny because I was being religious in the nation of Islam, but I also had a business where I sold to executives the best Acapulco gold you could find in New York. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And some of you have smoked a joint in your life. I had a new ounce that I was about to sell. And I went home and I flushed it down the toilet. My wife looked at me like, what happened to him? It was the beginning of a whole new process. And how many know change is not an event? Event becomes a catalyst for change, but change is a process. 
And all of a sudden, life had purpose and life had meaning. And I discovered that I was not an accident because my father abandoned me at birth and my mother. I was born in Panama and we left Panama to come to the United States to make a new start. She was broken, deeply wounded, and never fully recovered. And I was trying to make sense of life. But it was that night that I found meaning and I found purpose, calling. And something came alive that I was here to leave something behind, to make a deposit. I didn't know what it would be, but I just knew that I had to leave something here. And it reoriented my thinking, you see, because legacy doesn't begin when you realize you're 75 years old and maybe you better think about what you're going to leave behind. Legacy begins when you're young and you understand that your whole life ahead of you is going to be what you leave. Legacy doesn't start when you're old. It starts when you're young. It's a way of thinking that informs, shapes, and fashions your words, your thoughts, your motives, your actions, your attitudes, and your choices because you know you're not living for yourself, that you're part of something much greater than yourself, and what you do matters to generations that are not even born yet. Let me give you a text found in Proverbs 13, 22. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Wow. Of course, I had to first find out what a good man is. I wanted to know if I was good. I didn't want to ask my wife. <laughs> a good man is not a perfect man. He's a man that's quick to repent, quick to forgive, and teachable. He's a man that tries to live by the high, his higher self as much as he can, and he does so with a degree of consistency that can be respected. A good man, by biblical standards, is a man who has resolved the big question, who is God? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live in this world? And it's not that he knows those answers completely, but he's found the source. And all of a sudden, his identity, sense of self and worth is no longer bound up in his ethnicity or his race or his culture or his money or his education. He discovered that he, at the time of his conception, was conferred a status called the image of God that no one could take away from him. And then he begins to live out that image and become an imager of God. A good man. A man who takes responsibility for his life, for his words, his thoughts, his motives, his actions, his attitude. A good man. And that didn't happen for me until 
Jesus Christ came into my life. And I will share a, a, a little something with you on, on that order. Because in 1984, my wife and I, you know, I had committed the sin of transposition, put her last, all the stuff first. I mean, know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it got to a place where the D word came up. Divorce. And I was a pastor. So I was still learning and growing in all of this. And she prayed because I said, what can we do to fix this, to make it right? Because I don't want my legacy to be disrupted because of my immaturities. I was taking responsibility for what the condition was. And she said that she prayed. She came back to me after. She said, I prayed. I said, Ann, what happened? She said, God spoke to me. Now I'm hoping that God told us something good, you know. <laughs> she said, God told her, because it got to the place where she couldn't trust me because of my inconsistencies. And she said, God told her, if you can't trust him, Trust me in him. In spite of my human frailties and inconsistencies, she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Something deep and profound happened, and I was a different man. And she could have faith in that spiritual legacy that was established deep inside of me. And why do I bring that up? Because legacy is not just material, money, cars, houses, land. Legacy begins spiritually. Whether you realize it or not, whether you're intentional or not, you're going to leave a legacy. You're going to leave something behind. So best you be intentional about it. And your spiritual legacy is the most important legacy because that's where you resolve the identity crisis. That's where you resolve issues of purpose and meaning and life. And that's what you pass on. And my son standing here like that, that's part of my spiritual legacy because I passed on the faith that arrested me in a way that he could embrace it, not reject it, love it, and now live it, and now pass it on to his children. And all of a sudden, I'm living Proverbs 13, 22. I'm passing a legacy on to my children's children. You're going to pass on a spiritual legacy, whether it's intentional or not. 
Best to be intentional and in the context of the truth of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's going to be something else that is not the truth. And everything can't be true. Legacy is spiritual. Legacy is intellectual. Because the quality of your thinking determines the quality of your life. I'm going to say it again. The quality of your thinking determines the quality of your life. And too often we don't learn to think critically, so we fall prey to whatever's out there. And boy, do we need to think critically in a climate where there's so many voices coming at us trying to convince us that they're the right voice. That's why Jesus said, I'm not a truth, a way, a life. He said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. <laughs> Hallelujah. The kingdom of God is not a, a, a place that we go to after we die. No. When he said, seek first the kingdom of God, it's a way of thinking, doing, and being. It's a comprehensive way of seeing life that informs our words, our thoughts, our motives, our actions, our attitudes, and our choices. That's the kingdom. And we pass the knowledge of the kingdom from generation to generation. That's our intellectual Legacy. Legacy is emotional. Emotional health. We pass on. Legacy is motivational. The ability to exercise your will in a way that not only benefits you and your family, but benefits the common good. Legacy is material. It's about passing on what you accumulate in life by the successful life that you live to those who will then take it and build upon it. We don't do legacy well, whether it's political, whether it's spiritual, whether it's social, whether it's organizational, whether it's ministry and churches, and we've got to change that. So how befitting is it to have such a theme, to be our theme for this night, where men who are foundational to the family, which is foundational to society, are learning that they must intentionally determine what they want to leave behind. I want to hear those words, well done, good, and faithful servant. I want to hear those words. So I'm being intentional. I'm teaching my sons to be intentional. They're passing that on to their children to be intentional. And they're going to pass it on to the next generation. And that's exactly how society should work and function. That's how the kingdom of God should work and function. Legacy is something that you stand proud because you paid the price for. You gave the sacrifices and you can point to it just like I pointed to my son.
Gentlemen, it's in your hands tonight. I've left something spiritually with you, intellectually with you, motivational with you, emotional with you, and material with you. I've given you a way of thinking about your life that from tonight on, you can begin to build and establish your legacy and people can point to it as a model of the kingdom of God, the image of God, the life of God, and an ambassadorship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, give God a good hand clap off. Only God can turn you from hate to love. Only God could elevate you above all of the social constructs that divide us. Only God can tell you who you really are. Let me close with this and we'll pray. The desire for God is written on every human heart. And that's what was driving me to find out. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he's placed eternity in the hearts of men. And if he's placed eternity in our hearts, then there's nothing in time and space that can satisfy us. We come into the world with nothing, we leave with nothing, which means we are possessors of nothing but stewards of everything. And we're here to steward the gifts of time, talent, treasury, and relationships, and will be judged by what we do with them. I want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on, let's all stand. Whether you're in this building, whether you're joining us from around the world, I don't know what room you're in, what part of the house, maybe you're in the car, maybe you're out in the field, I don't know. But we're all connected here, globally. We're all standing before each other and before God, and we're all experiencing this challenge to take on the challenge of legacy because it is a challenge to rise up to the occasion and be that good man who's not perfect but striving towards maturity decisiveness consistency, and strength. That's the man who will change the world. That's the man who will make a difference. That's a man his children can trust, a woman can trust, society can trust. That's the man that God's calling for such a time as this. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, 
thank you for my story. And thank you for every story in this building and around the world. You are the one who's fashioning and shaping that story. You're the one who's filling it with opportunity to leave something special behind. I challenge every man here and in the sound of my voice to rise to the occasion, to become that good man and to leave a spiritual, intellectual, emotional, motivational, and material legacy for the generations to come. It all begins with that spiritual legacy. Father, I pray that there's someone, if there's someone in the sound of my voice who has not encountered this Jesus that, that gripped my heart, that arrested me, I pray just like that night that I stood there and something deep and profound happened inside that that's what's happening right now to some of the men in this building and around the world. Father, I pray that this is a new beginning, a turning point where manhood and Christ-likeness come together and begin a new journey. Father, anoint them, strengthen them, fill them with fearlessness, and let them go out into the world and be that light in the darkness, that love where there's no love, and that life where there's only death. Bring a fresh anointing upon them and let them mark this day just like I marked that day. That you seized me and changed me to use me as an instrument in your hands. I ask you and I thank you in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah! Thanks for tuning in to the A.R. Bernard podcast. I hope you were enriched by the information and or the conversation. Make sure, subscribe by clicking the link in the bio to gain more information about me and the work that I'm doing. Again, thank you. And God bless.